That should hopefully fix that. Excellent. <laughs> One of these days, the mic's going to work right the first try, I promise. Hello, everybody. Good day. Welcome. Ooh, here's a mess. Welcome to another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons Story Stream Podcast Series episode. Number 90. We are closing in on episode 100. I'm about to figure out something special for episode 100. I uh, have some thoughts in mind. But thank you all for once again coming by uh, my story podcast and letting me tell my tale, share my story, if you will. Um, we are going to be continuing from where we left off last episode uh, with our group of Seraph, Deacon, Mugen, and Dina. They've made their way to a city and, uh, yeah, ran into some uh, issues. So we're going to chat about that a little bit. Um, uh, again, I throw this out at the beginning of the stream. I need to be better about this. If you don't mind, if you're whether you're watching this on YouTube today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, it'd be awesome if you wouldn't mind clicking that like button and subscribing to the channel. Um, and if you have iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Podcasts, all that stuff, uh, Merge Worlds is available as an audio podcast as well. It'd be awesome if you have one of those accounts, if you'd swing on over there and give it a like and a follow as well, and a review, and all the five stars and such. Uh, I've had a couple people do that recently, and I really, really appreciated it. Every time that happens, I can see some new people uh, joining into the story. So if you have a couple seconds, it'd be awesome if you wouldn't mind helping support the podcast. In that way, 100% free, just give it a free follow. <clears throat> All right, so uh, with today's episode, uh, we'll do just a brief recap, and then we'll jump into the delicious, delicious meat of it. I got some really good feedback on the last episode. Uh, people seem to really enjoy um, hearing how the party members prepare for adventures, the actual acts of going around the town, interacting with people, buying stuff, um, which sometimes I leave some of those details out of the story here. We, of course, played them when Merged Worlds was the active campaign of the story, but um, I kind of breeze over that. So I'm, I am bringing some of that in more. Not all. I'm not going to over inundate you guys with that stuff, but I, I'm going to do a little bit more of that behind-the-scenes stuff, um, which still is story stuff, but might also, for those who play D&D, give you some ideas of how you want to run or play your own characters. All uh, right, so we'll jump right into it. Um, so uh, where we left off is our friends had made their way to the uh, to a city. Okay, they'd been traveling for quite a while since the date that they had saved or caught up with Dina finally um, and saved her, and they were making their way away. Um, so at the time that this story started, it had been a couple of months since that point. Um, and they had made their way to a city of Nemeria, which is kind of a neutral trade city for many different races. Um, and we went through some steps they were going through. They were getting some materials made. Uh, I talked about how Dino was being trained to fight by uh, primarily Seraph and Deacon, but a little bit by Mugen as well, um, so that she would be better prepared to help defend herself. Because uh, there are people out to get her. And while well, these guys are here to help as well, it's great if she knew how to also fight for herself. She's not a damsel in distress. Uh, another point that people seem to really enjoy from last week's episode, 
A lot of people just assumed they'd catch Dina and then it would be all about them protecting her, which is definitely, you know, important and going to happen. Uh, but the best way to protect someone is to help them learn to protect themselves, right? They can do everything in the world, but if they're if they're busy fighting a troll and something jumps at her, I mean, it's, it, it'd be good if she also knew how to do a little bit of attacking there. So they're teaching her how to fight as well. And Mugen has been even teaching her how to shoot his pistol, uh, something that Seraph and... and Deacon really didn't have much interest in. I'm sure they wanted to know how it worked. You know, Mugen showed them the behind it. Uh, Deacon probably was very interested in the black powder that he uses to to shoot. You know, to fuel obviously gunpowder. So for that type of thing, um, it was something uh, that he would have been interested in. But Deacon has magic, which is going to be more damaging than the gun. <laughs> so he doesn't really need that. And uh, Seraph is faster, as fast, if, if you would, as the bullet. So he's probably not going to need it as badly either. Uh, but still, they know how to use it. But for um, for her, not that he can give her the, a gun or make her one, it would require a lot of effort and tools and time. Uh, but in a pinch, wouldn't be bad for her to know how to use it. You know, if he's unconscious or, or he's meleeing and he tosses it to her, it'd be good to have that, right? I says, yes, so great she does things for herself. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, when they first met, she was a very direct person. She's a very I-know-what-I-like kind of thing person. Um, and so she's, she's always been uh, meant to be a strong character. She's not just a sit in the back, you know. She, the circumstances she finds herself in now are completely out of her control. And there were a lot of strong and powerful people trying to help protect her. So, of course, she would, she would take that help. But, uh she, uh, she, she, she's at a point where she wants to be able to make some of her own decisions, and uh, Seraph is the decision she's made. So they were just chilling in this town, getting some stuff. She got a new sword, which was pretty cool. Uh, it's not magical, but it is very well made, an elven blade, so it definitely fits uh, her fighting style and her stature. She's not overwhelmingly muscle, muscled out there. I say muscled, but you know, muscled. Uh, if you, you get someone like Mercy... You know what I mean? Mercy is just cut. She is muscle. I mean, she's she's a warrior through and through every day. She's a very physical character. And she wields a morning star and shield with deadly accuracy. She's incredibly strong. Um, and she's had most of her life to practice and to and have that type of thing. Dina is not. So getting a, you know, a thinner, lighter made, taking advantage of her agility, because she's always been a bit of a dancer and that kind of thing. Her agility over brute strength is really what they're they're trying to help her do. And Seraph, which has a good combination of both, this, his speed and agility is phenomenal, but he's got the strength. Um, they have a lot of options of helping her learn a way that's going to work best for her. Kind of a best of many worlds there. I will say that Dina has no aptitude for magic. So, I mean, Deacon, at no point is he trying to teach her how to use magic. And could he? Uh, is a question I've been asked recently. Could Deacon teach Magic. He's a mage. I mean, he's a young mage, but could he teach someone the basics? Probably. But, I mean, well, he had to learn how magic works and so on and so forth. For him, magic works differently because he has wild magic, that link that he has to use to both use and control. So uh, someone who doesn't use wild magic, it'd be har harder for him to relay exactly what it feels like and how to do that as he's never felt what a regular mage is like when they're casting ma magic. But the basics of it, and even giving her spells and things, she probably could, but it's not something that at any point, at least currently, uh, she's shown any interest in trying to do or he's shown any interest in trying. Plus, it's not like they got a lot of writing, writing utensils. They're traveling a lot. It's hard to learn on the road, that kind of thing. 
Well, they got all these materials and they're prepped, ready to, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out what they want to do next because they'd like to get home to Serenity. Now that they have Dina, they'd like Serenity is the safest place. It was their thought, right? Because it's where Mercy is, all the knights. It's where uh, his, you know, uh, Sarah's father and mother are, who are just very powerful, um, and all of their allies. But at the same time, that puts them very close to Oromon, the enemies that are trying to get her. Um, and trying to find a way home that would be safe is difficult. They're quite a distance away. So in the city, trying to see what their options are, when they are uh, found, if you will, by someone from the past, even though they've never met them. A gentleman showed up named Red. I have a, for those of you watching uh, on the YouTubes, there's Red again. Uh, Red made a small appearance many years ago in Merge Worlds, those of you who've been with me a long time. You may remember uh, when Artemis and Draven were just beginning the quest to go after Draven's brother. At one point, he sent her into a city to get something. In that city, in an inn, she met Red. And Red gave her a key. And that key is what opened up, basically, the Thieves' Dungeon that her and Dandy and Michael had gone in to get the Crystal Dagger, right? That Crystal Dagger has been a boon and thorn in their sides ever since they got a hold of it. It's currently out there somewhere full of Draven's blood and the biggest threat to Seraph's life, as far as they know. Uh, but the key to get in there... Red found that for Draven. And I believe, if I remember correctly, he said something along the lines like, tell him we're even now. Never really elaborated on that. Hmm, interesting. But Red arrives and says, hey, I know knew your father. I'm on a quest myself, and I need your help. I've been looking for you for a very long time. Um, that Red is a follower of fate. He's a finder, particularly. Um, which, in, in asked... Could a finder be a character class? Potentially. Uh, someone, someone had asked me about that, and I'd never sat down and made the mechanics of it. But yes, someone could be a finder of fate as a, cl as a class. There could be pros and cons to playing someone of that nature. I would think that it would be a kit more than it would be a full class. So you'd be like a fighter slash... Not dual spec, but fighter, finder, or thief, finder. You could be any... Any type of skill or race and be a finder. I would, that, that would work perfectly fine. But it would be a, maybe a kit that had pros and cons to it. But he's a finder. He finds things. And he needs Seraph. And he is a follower of fate. That fate basically guides him to what he needs to complete the quests and find the things that he's seeking. And Seraph is one of the things he needs to complete this quest. Which is to find a magical circlet. There's a gem in the center of it. Because someone who Red says is a, is a good person, that her son, uh, who was 15, his soul was stolen from his body by an enemy and trapped inside of a gem. And that they managed to get a hold of the gem, but they need a way to get it out. And this magical circlet is the only thing they found that may be able to do that. Guaranteed? Not for sure, but may be able to do that. So they're trying to find that. Okay, And uh, they agreed to join up with them in exchange for Red offering them a key, a Realm Gate key. And Realm Gates are the things that are all over Merged Worlds that you can literally, if you have one of the keys, if you know the name of, a, of another Realm Gate, you can portal between the one gate and another. Uh, the gates themselves were created as part of Merged Worlds. They're part of Omniana's control, and they're controlled from the source, which is a location uh, at this floating above the central sea of 
uh, Merge Worlds. And the keys themselves are distributed throughout the world. Uh, in It's believed by Omniana uh, when Merge Worlds was created. So no one can make a key. The keys that are out there are what exist. Um, and in the past, or in our group, Mercy and Dandy and Draven all had a key. Um, but Red appears to have one now as well. And with that key, if he helps them find a nearby realm gate, because they're not just everywhere, but they're all over, uh, that would be a direct way home. It would allow them to get themselves and Dina directly back to Serenity uh, with just a couple days distant from, from Serenity. Uh, and when they go through the gate, they would arrive where Serenity itself has a large contingent of... Basically, there's a, there's a fort there. Uh, filled with warriors and mages and such, because you know something bad could come through that gate in the intention of attacking Serenity, and so they'd have to have that protected. But they would immediately have people who would know them and could help them uh, travel the very short distance all over Serenity's land to get back to Serenity proper. It would be a huge boon for them to have that. So they agreed to do that. And Red said, okay, in a couple of days, I'll be back, I'll bring horses and stuff, we'll carry on. So over that next couple days, they, of course, go around and finish up what they need, picking up any uh, last-minute supplies that they may need, even though Red said he's going to bring majority of it. Um, they're going to go and pick up some of the things they ordered, because uh, Mugen was getting some, uh, basically, bullets for his gun, just balls specifically, having made specific size and shape. From Elvin Smithy that he found was making them for him. Uh, same guy they got uh, Dina's sword from. So they go around and they gather up all those things and they try to find as much information as they can about based on what little information Red has given them in the area. They're trying to find out as much as they can so they kind of know what they're going. And they learn a few things that we're going to discuss as we move into the story. Uh, but we're going to, of course, as always, begin with just a little bit of reading as we, uh, as we step in. So we'll start right off the bat with a little bit of reading. What all do you know of this circlet you seek? asked Dina. Very little, to be honest, said Red, slowing his horse and riding next to her. The five of them were riding across uh, a green, lush plain. Red had provided them horses. Uh, one of them was a small pony for Mugen, who had been learning to ride and was doing well with it. Uh, but luckily the pony was uh, a very gentle beast and he was having a much easier time with that than he had the few horses they'd tried to get for him. But in the world or in order to move quickly, Mugen had to learn to ride. Everybody else in the group already could. Uh, even Dina had experience riding, although she's probably not like a expert horseman by any means. She knows that she can do the basics of it. Uh, so Mugen just is not something they ever dealt with in New, uh, New Gully. So it's not there were no real horses. If they did have them, they were probably meant more for or used more for farming and such. Although, if I remember correctly, in New Gully they used large pigs for that. They have very large hogs that pull their small farming utensils. Um, they carried with them ample supplies, food, and more. Uh, they'd been traveling together at this point for about four to five days. Um, Red continues. If the item has a name, I've not found it, Red continued. It is old, though, and, if, and I've found mention of it in several old tomes. I know it can transfer souls from one body to another. I believe it can be used to move the lad's soul from the gem it's imprisoned in back to his own body. Because, again, that's what the whole goal is. But... It, He's saying that originally the circuit was meant to move souls from one body to another. 
Why would such an item exist? Asked Dina. I can't think of another reason other than this situation that we're in right now that a soul would need moved like that. Was this circlet created specifically for this situation? Seraph, Mugen, and Deacon rode silently behind them listening to the conversation. Red's face grew more serious. Its original intent was much, much more nefarious, I'm afraid. My research showed it to be in the hands of a dark and sinister man who used it to steal the souls of the innocent for his own evil experiments. I assume in some type of an attempt to prolong his own life. So he is who we're looking for then, surmised Dina? I don't believe so, replied Red. The writings say that he was betrayed by someone, someone close to him, and it's they who took the circlet, and at that point it became lost to time. But you found it, she asked. Not yet, smiled Red again, but I know we draw closer to it. All of the signs are pointing north. The grape traveled towards the great northern swamp. The dark tales and frightening rumors of it were easy to find in Nemeria. Red assured them that much of what they'd heard was true, so they were very surprised when he told them of Deramet, a small city on the swamp's border. Deramet was the was their current destination. So again, I, last episode we talked about what was in every direction. North was a great swamp, and I'd mentioned that uh, no one went into this swamp or went into it far, uh, because it said anybody who tried to go through the swamp uh, either never came back again, or came back completely insane, completely lost of mind. So no one knows what's north of the swamp. No one's ever successfully made it through the swamp and come back. That's not to say people may not have made it through. I mean, technically that considers never returning. They may have been successful and carried on, uh, but no one's ever gone through and come back in a way that anyone here in the south knows how to do that. Um, and several larger places, like Nemeria, that city we were talking about, probably sent expeditions up there. I mean, they're a pretty big city, and looking for trade, finding a way through the north to another profitable city or resources, why wouldn't they? Um, but even them, even the expeditions they sent in, never returned. And that that's a much more uh, concernable issue. They sent 50 well-armed, well-trained uh, you know, guards and warriors and, and people who do this type of thing, scouts in, and not a single one comes back. Or if they do come back, they're muttering such madness and nonsense, no one understands what they're saying. You're not going to keep throwing people at that, you know? Um, in fact, in some situations, they may even have some defensive areas around there, making sure nothing comes back through it. Although, at this point, they found no history or stories or tales of anything coming out of the swamp. Like, you know, Something vicious or lizard frogmen, which we've had in swamps before, if you've been hanging around. No frogmen today. No knee-deep for you folks. I apologize. But there's no that they're aware of any type of intelligent race or anything living in this massive, unending swamp. I say unending because no one's ever seen the other side of it. So it could be unending. Their travels had been peaceful so far and quite relaxed. Red was a friendly host who seemed to enjoy answering their questions. And he does. And they have every, and they genuinely get a feeling that he's telling them the truth. He will not go into more detail about who the woman or the son and her son that they're trying to help. He said, part, part of that, me agreeing to take on this quest, was to keep their identities secret because if the, it got out that her son's soul was like this, that could be used by enemies against her. Um, so it's, it's important 
for for her for for her his promise that he not tell anyone. But other than that, he'll say just about anything. And they've asked some about his life, and in that area, he's been a bit vague. Um, they know that he's probably at this point in his um, late forties, early fifties. He's he's a bit older, not ancient. I'm getting there myself, by God. But he's getting a bit older. Um, uh, but again, he's also, like I said, he wears a rapier. He seems very well-trained. He definitely knows how to handle a horse. Uh, they have everything to believe that he, he is what he's saying. He'd been particularly chatty with Dina, which at first had concerned Sarah. That faded away quickly, though, as Red acclimated into the group. Um, you know, because Seraph is very protective of her. Anybody showing attention? Uh, is some of it maybe a hint of jealousy? Sure, Maybe. Uh, and is some of it just concerned for her safety? Of course, that's true. Uh, again, they, they've heard all this from Red, but he's not spoken to his father. He has no way to confirm any of the things Red is who he says he is. So that's a concern for them. But Red very quickly acclimates and becomes part of the group, and he's just, again, so friendly and over honest that they don't have much reason. And then Seraph learns that it's not that he's he's giving that much attention to Dina. It's that Dina's very questioning of it. You know, Seraph is the very quiet type. He sits kind of in the back and just listens. And Mugen is along those lines because Mugen's just trying to understand everything. I'm not saying he's stupid, but a lot of the things that come up in this outside world are things he has zero experience with. So he he asks questions when he doesn't understand something, but he spends a lot of his time just trying to take in this information. Because again, remember, he is much smarter than the average gully. But Dina's, Dina and Deacon are a little bit different. Both of them are very questioning. And Deacon's going to ask a lot of questions. And, and uh, Dina will as well. And so Seraph might be like, hmm, talking to Dina a lot. Then he gets thinking, well, he's also talking to Deacon a lot. And so on and so forth. So Seraph's very the strong, quiet, silent type. Although he chats much more with Dina than anyone else in life. Uh, Deacon and Mugen, of course, being a close second. Let's see. At camp each day, uh, at each day, time was set, still set aside for Dina's training, as she was now learning to use her new sword. So, uh, as they you know make camp at night or get up in the morning, there's always some time for practice and training. Now she has this new sword that's lighter and more fit for her. She has to learn how to handle it a little bit differently. But they're right now they're traveling through this plains. As the two chatted, the group began to ride upwards as the land began to incline. Over time, trees became less and less common, and the vegetation less abundant. Red told them that they'd not much further to go. So really, the land starts to slope up. And it's not just hilly, it's like everything's going upwards. Kind of like if you're going towards a mountain. You know, land just goes up that way, but there's, there's not a mountain, it's just going up. Less and less trees. There's still grass and stuff on the ground, but no real thick bushes and stuff at this point. It's just becoming much more sparse. Um... It was late afternoon when they crested a large hill and they finally saw the small city of Deramat before them. And what a sight it was. A long, steep decline lay before them and at its bottom sat Deramat. The city looked perfectly round and was surrounded by a tall wall. The city and the ground it sat on looked completely out of place. A clear line surrounded the city, as if drawn by some giant hand, about 500 feet from the city's walls. Within that circle lay the sands of a desert. The city and most of its building were made of sandstone. Outside the circle lay the swamp, its waters surrounding it. 
The swamp continued north with no end in sight and was filled with trees, some grown to gigantic heights. The swamp looked dark and ancient, and even the sky above it looked darker and had more clouds. The group began to make their way down towards the city slowly. Red had warned them that people inside were spooked easily. So set this stage, right? you got a swamp. Imagine if somebody put the went whoop, and just drew a finger around this city, 500 feet from its round city, and it's just a, a circle of sand like it's a desert. Merge world type kind of thing. Although this is a little unusual when it comes to um, a merge world's break, is what I kind of call them when you break off a piece of a world and slam it into another one. This was perfectly round. Um, it's very common for there to be completely straight lines, right? Like a straight line of a city and uh, it chunked or maybe even be jagged, but um, or half a city or half a building kind of thing. But this is just like someone literally pulled up a, cut out a perfectly round pizza shape, pulled it up and then set it down on top of a swamp. Kind of give you a feel for that. And of course, as per the merged world's rules, the swamp does not bleed into the sands and the sands does not bleed out, which means once you step into the sands, it will feel like a desert. The heat will increase, temperature gets hotter, wind, it could even be windier the moment you step across that line. Uh, and and uh, if the water will literally just come to a solid stop. There are times, if you ever played a video game, you'll know what I'm talking about, where water is broken and it just kind of stops. You can walk beside this wall of water. Uh, Minecraft, a great example uh, of worlds where that can happen sometimes. That's what water can look like in merged worlds. There are some times where a lake stops halfway through. It's much more common for it to for it to be like a straight line and then just dirt, like someone just cut the river the lake in half and filled the hole in. Um, but once in a while, you'll find that solid bit of water that just doesn't overflow. Water coming from solid objects like rocks, like a river's flowing, even though it's flowing from a solid sheet of rock. Um, there are reasons, but it does it does kind of work like that. So they make their way down towards the gate. And there's not a lot of people milling around. It's already at this point getting near. I said it was late afternoon, so you got to imagine we're within an hour or two of the the sun probably going down. There's not a lot of activity outside the city. Uh, there's maybe some old lean tos here and there, some maybe some wagons and carts, but it doesn't appear that anyone's built any homes or even homeless people have shacks and stuff around the city. And a lot of times that you'll find that outside the wall of a great city, just other homes and stuff built around it and things. But the city will, you know, those people would rush inside if they're being attacked. Their homes may get destroyed, but at least they would go into the walls and be protected. The city doesn't have that. Everything appears to be basically inside other than just some odds and ends. Um, of course, they arrive at the gate, which is open. Uh, but there are multiple well-armed guards there um, who, you know, obviously know they're coming. You, they can see them coming down this big decline. They've been coming slowly. They're not rushing forward. And let's remember, some of these guys look a little odd, right? Dina, Deacon, even Red, they could look fine. But Mugen and Seraph uh, stand out. Mad Max Mugen, really. It's kind of the way everybody's been telling, explaining, describing him, but... It is kind of, that post-apocalyptic kind of look is definitely uh, what I was going for with moving. you got to remember, he's got tattoos and stuff on him, too, all over his face and everything. But they make their way down there, and of course a guard comes up. He's eyeing them, seeing that there's five of them, right? And Red is the one who kind of steps up to, to be a spokesman in this situation, which is kind of nice for the heroes, because they're like, oh, good. 
He knows what we're doing. He's leading this group. We're going to help him. He can do all the talking and all the hard stuff. We don't have to figure out what's going on. We don't have to worry about coming up with lies or stories or explaining things. That'll be his job, and hopefully he won't do it poorly and get us killed. Uh, Red is very, very charismatic. He's a uh, decent-looking dude. He's, 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 he's on the attractive side. He's not Brad Pitt gorgeous or nothing, you know, whatever. But he's, 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 he's an attractive man. But his personality and voice, and just he's, he's very outgoing. Um, it doesn't take long for people to, to, to really uh, you know, warm up to him. He's the type of person in the in the inn who's telling the stories much like a bard would, but not on stage. He's just telling his adventures and everybody laughing and so on and so on and telling tales of, of his stuff people enjoy. Everybody knows Red. He's got the best stories kind of a thing. Uh, so he, he's very good at warming people over, which he did with our heroes, which he's doing with people at the gate. Of course, they ask the, the basic questions. Why are you here? What brings you to the city? And this city's obviously not a place that gets a lot of visitors. There was no road here. I want to stress that. They've been traveling across the plains. Um, Red explains that they've come there to meet someone, which is a surprise to Seraph and his friends. Because Red didn't say that. Red just said we had to go to this city. They didn't really ask too much. He didn't offer more, so either they felt he didn't, need to, he didn't want to tell them or he didn't know. Because you remember, sometimes he's guided by fate and he doesn't know quite what he's doing until he gets there. But now he's there, he says, yeah, we've come to meet someone. Maybe find a place to stay for the night. And then tomorrow we intend to go into the swamps. The guard kind of looks in from it and goes, Ah, you're fools then. I understand. <laughs> like, like just, oh, you're, you're freaking idiots. Well, you know, can't be helped. Some people. And he's like, all right, well, you know, probably give some basic rules. Don't cause any problems, so on and so forth. You say you're going to stay for the day. If you decide to stay longer, come by and check in. We know you're here. We're going to be looking for you. Not, we don't see you come out of this gate tomorrow. You know. Don't lie and then try to stay forever. Go which way. Maybe pointed out like an in some basic information. They did not ask who he was looking for. They don't pry into that information so much. Um, but the, they do let them in the city. Uh, there's, another, there's, there's probably eight to ten guards around the front door. And this is five people. They don't look overwhelmingly impressive. They're well geared. Seraph and Deacon, probably out of all of them. Remember, they're... They're both basically the childrens of nobility. One of them officially is. Uh, they have very good gear. Uh, yeah, so they, uh, as they go into the city make their way in, they, it seems like a desert city, right? Kind of like what you'd expect. There's sandstone, a lot of tarps to help keep the sun down and stuff, places to get... Uh, so a lot, it's very yellows and tans colored. Uh, the buildings and such. But what they notice very quickly is that a lot of the buildings are in very bad repair and look abandoned. Um, the city itself is in pretty bad shape. Um, and just from looking around, they can tell that the city's probably at least half, if not more, abandoned at this point. Um, and there's probably some natural reasons for that. It's a desert, and you can walk 500 feet and not be in a desert anymore. I'd make that choice. But that's me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can walk 500 feet and farm. <laughs> That'd be a thing. Uh, but then there's also this big, scary, nasty swamp here. Maybe being next to that's not the most positive thing either, if what everybody is saying is true about it. So what few people they see on the streets, and it's sparse, uh, everyone they see appears to be human. So they don't come across any of the other races, at least in this area. They do make their way towards an inn. Uh, in 
in town that the guards had pointed out to them. Uh, and they arrive and go inside. The inn is mostly empty as well. Not a sign of a lot of travelers. The place is okay. I wouldn't say it's dirty, but it does look a bit run down. Clearly, they're not getting a lot of business. So the innkeeper, uh, instead of being suspicious, is overwhelmingly joyed to see them. Especially when they, you know, like, we want a room, we'd like food, we'd like drink, here's money. You know, it's like, yes, please, come on in. You're probably going to give us more than we make in a week. So that would be awesome. Come on in. And they, in fact, get some food and drinks, and they set up to get themselves three rooms for the evening. Seraph and Dina will be sharing a room as normal. Uh, Mugen and Deacon will be sharing a room that, again, is still required to be directly across the hall or next to it. Uh, it is a stipulation they ask for at any inn they stay in. And this one being as empty as it is, it's very easy to get that done. And Red gets his own room because he's footing the bill for all of this, which they don't really find out till this moment. He's like, and I'll be paying for the meals and the drinks and the food. And they're like, we have money. He's like, yes, but at this, for this point, for this time moving forward until we're done working together, you are technically working for me. I'm covering your costs. You know, unless you want to go out and buy you a sword or something special. I mean, that's you. But for basic food board, I said I would handle supplies. I've got the tab here. So he's, he pays for the room. All of it up front, which makes the innkeeper ecstatic. So food comes in. They eat it. The food's adequate. Uh, nowhere near as good as the food that they were getting back in the previous city. But it's still better than road rations and what they end up making in a pot half the time. Although Mugen still has some skills with food cooking. Uh, especially with some stews and potatoes. They set their stuff, they, they go up, check their room, set the stuff down, so on, go down, eat and drink. And they're just kind of hanging out there in the front room. And not talking a whole lot, just kind of a little bit. Uh, basic you know, chat, chatter about this and that. Same kind of conversations they've been having before. Um, but until the innkeeper comes up and it's like, uh, so what brings you to the city? You know, what's going on? What brings you here? You're obviously not from around here. And uh, Red explains again. He goes, yes, we've uh, come here to meet someone. And the owner's like, oh, well, I know pretty much everyone in town. Who is it you're looking for? Maybe I can help. And Red just looks at him and smiles. He goes, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. Now, Sarah from them hearing that's like, well, that's not a good sign. And you, just, you don't know? No, actually, I don't. I'm here to meet someone, but uh, I can assure you, I'll know them when I see them. The owner's a little confused by that, and okay, and excuses himself. Goes back to whatever he's doing around the bar. And his friends don't question it. Red doesn't offer anything. He sits there eating his meal, drinking on his drink, and they use that mostly in, in silence. They spend about an hour hanging out. At this point, the sun's almost completely down. And Red, like, out of nowhere, just kind of perks his head and goes, well, it's time to go. And stands up. And they're like, okay. And they get up as well. And they're like, are we leaving the city? And he's like, no, no, no. We're just leaving the inn for a while. We'll be back to spend the night here. Uh, but I think it's I think it's best we walk around a little bit. And I'm like, okay. So they go out of the inn. The inn itself... I won't. I don't want to say it was loud. It's not loud. There's probably a fire going, even though it's a, you know, even the desert gets cooler at night. There's probably a fire going at one place. Pots doing it. People talking. Somebody cooking. So it's not like dead silent. And it's made of sandstone, which I can tell you, being in a building made of sandstone, because I did that once. Uh, pretty sound muffling. You know, a lot of sound coming through those. So the city just kind of cut out from that. But they walk outside and they get on the street and they're barely outside, closing the door. 
when they can hear bells ring in the distance. Let me catch up to where I am here. As soon as the bells begin to ring, Red just looks at his friends and smiles. He goes, I guess we should go that way. They, ring, they only ring two or three times. His friends are curious. They're like, and Dina's like, you came out, you heard the bells from inside? And Seraph had heard no bells. And he's like, no, no. They just happened to ring when we came out here. And she's like, yeah, they rang just the moment we came out. <laughs> almost as if guided, if you will. And Red just gets that kind of smile. He's like, yeah, almost like the fates guide us. This is how Red works. He gets these signs. He sees something out of something catches his eye that lets him know whatever. A sign, a clue or something. It's like, oh, time to leave. He gets outside at the exact moment he should. Here's the bells. And he starts leading them deeper into the city. They go down the main street again, which kind of intersects and curves. They go around some buildings and they get to what is closer to the center of the city and they can see that there's a large temple there. And from the symbols that are on it, it's dedicated to the gods of good. This is a great sign for anybody <laughs> who's not evil that, oh, they have a temple and they're worshipping good gods. Sweet. Okay. Probably not going to be anybody in that temple who's evil and stuff and going to be a problem because they'd have a problem walking on that consecrated ground, right? We've talked about that a bunch of times. They can see that there's a lot of people outside and someone is giving a prayer. And they just kind of get, there's a, a fair crowd gathered there, probably a couple hundred people. It is a city after all. Small city, but a city nonetheless. And they're listening to the prayer and they can tell that the prayer, there's, it's a dedicated, it's some type of holiday for this area. They speak of a story of someone who did something in the past that kind of thing, and it's a celebration of that into the gods themselves. So people have gathered for that, which is part of the reason why the city seemed even extra emptier than it did as they were coming through. Um, but all that stuff I said about the city falling apart and a lot of people have already been gone from the city is true. And we'll look at the reasons why. The merge happened over 20 years ago at this point, right? And like I said, you're 500 feet from grass and terrain and things that maybe these people had never seen before. There was a lot of options and opportunities to potential travel, and a lot of people would have moved on. Plus, if you think you've lived all of your life in the desert, many of your professions are going to be based on that. Uh, there's no more leaving the city and going and gathering whatever supplies it was you used to gather and sell. Those don't exist anymore. There's new stuff. You could cut wood and things from the, from the swamp, but it would be a hard hard turnover, and a lot of people had to go searching for work and things elsewhere. So over the last 20 plus years, the city has just slowly lost people as they've moved off and moved on to better areas or, or, or better lands that are safer and, and more productive. Um, so it's not like, I do not want you all to think that everybody ran away because there's something scary in the city. That is not the case. So people, of course, like I said, there's a prayer thing, and then once the person is done, there's a big cheer, then this music begins, there's some dancing, classic celebration happens. So they see all these people are starting to dance and sing and hanging out, there's people eating, and so on and so forth, and they decide, okay, they're just kind of watching this from the sides, um, and they hang out probably about 15 minutes, watching, listening to the music, watching people enjoy themselves, and, you know, they, that kind of mood would make anybody smile, like, oh, there's some kids running around, that's, that's cute, and blah, 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 oh, there's couples dancing, that's cute as well, so on and so forth. Um, they're enjoying themselves, just kind of hanging back and watching. After about 15 minutes of that, Red kind of smiles and steps away from the group, steps and turns and starts walking towards the crowds of people. 
And he's kind of goes like this to his friends. Like he swings his head like, let's go. Doesn't say anything, but gives that, hey, we're going in this way. And the group are like, okay. And begin following him as he starts making his way through the throngs of people. I'm not saying it's like people all packed in like a concert, but groups of people talking. You're going in and around them. Maybe there's a little area people are dancing. There's a band over there. There was a little puppet show. Some kids are watching that. Just different stuff. It's not super late in the evening. We're only like an hour into darkness. So I'd say it's probably around 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, that time period. But the sun is down at this point, so it's all lit up for night. Okay? And they start walking through this crowd. And they're making their way. And Red doesn't seem to be going a straight line. He seems to be weaving in and out. And so it's hard for them to tell if there's a specific place or person he's heading towards. And they're all curious. They're all watching. Like, are we here for a person? Are we looking for a thing? What are, you know, They're trying to see what Red's seeing. But he's just kind of making for people. And, and at some points it gets kind of thick and packed in. They have to excuse me, squeeze through. And in some areas they've got lots of room to walk. So I'm setting the stage for you all. Hopefully you're getting the visual of what I'm trying to explain. And then I read some. The thief's touch was light and quick. He had the purse tied to the man's belt, untied in an instant. And, a ma- and any man would be none the wiser. A normal man, at least. Unfortunately for the thief, that purse belonged to Seraph. Seraph's hand moved like lightning, and before the thief knew what was happening, Seraph had grabbed the man by the front of his tunic and lifted him clear off his feet into the air. The crowd around them fell in silence, and all eyes were on them. There were some whispers in the background, and it only took a moment before several members of the city guard, because you can imagine there's going to be people there watching, protecting, to make sure things don't happen when there's partying and drinking. Several members of the city guard began pushing their way through the people towards them. One guard, large mustache, particularly, uh, you could tell from his gear, he's probably a little bit higher rank, steps up and says, What's going on here? The guard asked loudly. Before Seraph or his friends could speak, Red stepped forward to meet the guard. No problems here, my good sirs, Red said. We're just excited to meet an old, meet an old friend. He looked to Seraph and winked. Seraph was confused, but played along setting the young thief in his hands back down on the ground. The guard looked unconvinced. You know these folks, Wart? The thief looked at them and then smiled nervously. Uh, sure. Uh, like he said, just some old friends having a laugh. The guard clearly wasn't buying it, but there wasn't much else to be done. No one, no problems, no one's complaining, there's no issues. But the mustached guard looked down at him, looked, looked at the young thief venomously, and he said, Stay out of trouble, Wart. You're already on your last chance. Nothing else better to do? The guards turned and made their way back out of the crowd. That by this point had already forgotten them and had gone back to celebrating. Right? Once they realize no fight's going to happen, nothing exciting, the crowd goes back to doing what they're doing. Once the guards were far enough away, The young thief looked at them suspiciously. Why didn't you turn me in? He asked. Red smiled and put his hand on the thief's shoulder. Because we've come a long way to find you, lad. Come, I have a business proposition for you. So Red says, yeah, come, business proposition. The the thief is obviously suspicious, but if these people could have just turned him over, uh, he was clearly breaking 
breaking the law there, turned him over as a thief, uh, would have gone very unwell for him. And from the sounds of it, the city guard knew who he was, and that reference to you're on your last chance uh, meant that that could have gone really bad for him. So they could have got him in serious trouble, and it's easy to surmise they would have known that as well based on that interaction. So the fact that they didn't turn him in and want to talk business with him, the guard are like, well, you thieves? What do you, what do you want? He agrees to come with them. They make their way back to the inn again, uh, get a table in the common room, kind of private, away from anyone else, order another set of drinks, and including one for the young man. Um, who they learn's name is Ward, W-A-R-D. But he kind of embarrassingly says that most people call him Wart and consider him to be a bit of a nuisance. So they proceed to kind of say, here's what's going on. They gave him the same basic information they gave Seraph, leaving out Seraph's past and things of that nature, of course. But he's like, we're looking for something, and we need your help to do it. I can only tell you that we do. I've been led to you, basically through magic. And I have to, we're, we're doing this, we're trying to save a soul, so and so we're looking for this magical artifact. And, and you can tell the young man's following along, and he's just kind of, he's got that look like, okay, all right. Sure, doing heroic things, okay. But there's that whole, in the back of his mind, like, what does this have to do with me, you know? And so he finally says, what, what, what is it you need from me? And they're like, well, we need you to come with us. We're going to go into the swamp tomorrow, and we're going to find, we're looking, you know, heading north, continuing. And Red says that. Now, he hadn't specifically told that to Seraph and them, that that was what they were doing next, but they came all the way to the north. That's what they'd assumed. Um, and at this point, their thought is, okay, Red said that once he saw Seraph, he knew where he had to go next. Seeing Seraph, he didn't know where he had to go after he found Seraph. Until he found Seraph. And then he needed, knew where he needed to go next. And <clears throat> Red would have explained that as, I couldn't find you for a very long time. But I finally found you here. Relatively close to where I have to go next. Because he would know that at that point. He wouldn't until he catches up. It's like, oh, look, the place I finally found you, conveniently located, only a week or five days away from, from where I'm, the next step in this puzzle, in this quest is. Um, and the same thing would happen here. He's here to meet, find someone. Doesn't know why. Doesn't know who. But once he founds him, he lays his eyes on the person. He's like, excellent. And now we can go into the swamp. So telling that to Ward, Ward's like, stands up and like, oh, hell no. Literally, it's like, oh, hell no. You're insane. No one goes into the swamp. And then begins to say the same things I've ever heard. You don't go in there. No one ever comes back. You can go in a little ways. People go in there and cut wood and fish and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. But you don't sleep in there. You don't go in overnight. You sure as heck don't travel up into it. No one comes back from that. Except for a few people. And I've seen them. They're insane. They don't even speak in words you can understand at that point. Sometimes it sounds like other languages. Sometimes it'll be a word here and there you know. But not in a sentence that makes sense. They've called in clerics. They've called in mages. There's no curing these people. I do not intend to turn out like that. There's no way I'm going to go in there. I wish you all the best of luck. He says, that thing's that you're either going to die or worse in there. He goes, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to live. And Red's like, it's a fair point. And of course, it's completely your choice. No way would we ever try to force you to go. If you don't wish to come with us, that's fine. We'll move on without you. And you can stay here and do whatever it is you're doing. Stealing, from the looks of it. 
Sounds like you're uh, not too good at it either because they seem to know who you are. <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, get by. I do all right. He goes, yeah, yeah, uh, I can tell. <laughs> he goes, let me ask you this. Obviously, going with us to, to help the young lad, save the young lad's soul that we're looking to do, isn't high on your priority list. And I can understand that. You don't know those people. You don't know us. Why would you want to risk your life for that? But there's one thing I hadn't mentioned yet. The circlet that we seek is not alone. In fact, uh, from my understanding and from what I know, it is in a location where there is a large amount of treasure, vast wealth, enough wealth, it would take care of you for the rest of your life. Now, we're here for the circlet. I can't speak for the, my friends here. If they wish to split treasure, I, I couldn't speak to that. That's up to them. I care nothing for that. I don't need money. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm a man of means, and I have my funds. I'm fine. I'm here for the circlet. So anything else we come across of this potentially massive amount of treasure that we come across, it's up for you to decide what you guys want to do with it. He goes, so you can stay here and do what you're doing, or come with us, and I can guarantee you we're going to be successful at this. We're going to return safe and sound, and if you come with us, you could return very, very wealthy. Now, I want to remind everybody that in the last conversation that he had with Sarah from them, he said, I don't offer to pay people. And he's not. He's like, I offer in trades and promises. Come with me, and I promise you we're going to find treasure vast amounts of it, and you can have it. I'm not offering to pay you a certain amount of gold, whatever, but you come with me, you can have all the treasure we find. The ward is a little bit... You can tell he's thinking about it, and it's and it's like he's nervous, right? He's like, well, in his head, you got those thoughts like, that's a lot of money, but I don't know these guys. Can I trust them? At the same time, not really living the best life here, because ward, in, in fact, is basically the equivalent of homeless, um, Ward, unfortunately, does not have any family. And this is something what characters would learn. I'm not jumping ahead too far. So he's not in the best spot here. Um, and he has had some run-ins with the law and uh, has already been told if he gets caught breaking the law again, he'll be swinging in the gallows. So he, you know, every time he does, that's one reason he targeted them, because they're not locals. It might be less likely he'd get picked out like that. But he's, he's in a tough kind of bind himself. And Red says, we'll be leaving in the morning. You get to choose. If you wish to come with us, meet us at the gate. We'll cover all expenses for the trip. I'll have supplies for you. Meet us at the gate. If you do not, we will continue on without you. No harm, no foul. Ward's, Ward kind of nods his head and he's like, I'll think about it. And then make his way in leaving the inn. He goes out the inn. Running gag in D&D. Every time someone goes in the in or out the in or in the out or out the out. I like to throw all those examples out. I go in the in. You go in the in or do you go in the out? There's two doors. <laughs> just, to, just to mess with my players. It's just a fun thing. So, after he leaves, now they have a chance to discuss. And Deacon's like, we need that that kid? And for the record, he's, he's only... Like 15 years old. I should. I didn't clarify that. Ward's lived in the city his whole life. He says that, and he's he's right around 15 years. Like, I'm not sure what he brings to the table. Uh, he's surely not the best thief in the world. Seraph's like, 
Well, to be honest, he's actually pretty good. I mean, I was able to hear him moving, and I was able to a little bit different because uh, it's me. But uh, he's like, he was actually very, very nimble and quick. You know, he actually did show a little bit of promise there. But still, bringing this young man into the swamp that even you yourself, Red, has said that most of the stories we've heard about it are true. What does he bring with him that we need? And once again, Red gives one of those very frustrating answers. I don't know yet. But I know we need him. Can we get by without him? Possibly. But we'll be much, we have a much greater chance of success if he comes with us. But it has to be his choice. We can't force him. Oh, it's okay, Corb. How much did you miss? We're about an hour in. We're about an hour in. But actually, we haven't jumped into too much stuff yet. We've, uh, Gorba, uh, good friend on the community member, uh, good friend and community member who enjoys the story. Uh, they're in a small city on the edge of the swamp to the north. And uh, just potentially have tried to hire the uh, assistance of a young uh, 15-year-old rogue named Ward that people call Wart. During this conversation about Ward, Dina asks a question. And she goes, I don't, I, I have to apologize. I don't, I don't want to sound rude or anything like this, but um, something seemed kind of off about that young man. Seraph and Deacon both nod. They're like, yeah, and physically there's something off about him. I mean, I, we picked up on that as well, but it's not the kind of thing you, we're going to ask him about. And by off, you know, if we look at Ward, Ward is a little short for a human. Not much. He's not like gnome short or nothing like that. He's just a little short for a human. Uh, with kind of a, a nimble, stocky build. A little bit stocky, but not outwardly normal, but it does seem like some of his proportions were off. His head seemed a little bit large for his body. And had they looked, and some did, the hands and feet were kind of the same way. It seems like his body proportions are a little bit off. And Red smiles and explains, yes, I believe he's, I believe one of his parents was probably a halfling. Now this kind of catches them all by surprise. There's never been a, a child born of human and halfling that they're aware of. It's not a common combination. Human and kender children exist. Petal is one of them. But even that's exceptionally rare. A mixture of different races like that very often don't produce children. Um, it's very rare for that to happen. And these folks are not fully aware of it ever happening with a halfling. But they're like, wow, okay. Well, you know, halflings make good thieves, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, just, none of that holds anything against him. None of his skills or uh, abilities would be lacking because of that. But it does mean he may have some additional assistance there as well. He may have some basic improvision and such, like halflings can. So these are some things that's good to know. But Red had picked up on that. He understood that pretty much immediately upon seeing the boy. The other ones are like, he just seems off about him. So after explaining that he's half a halfling, Mugen's like, so is he, a, is he a quarterling? And is he quarter human? Is he quarter halfling? Is a halfling a half of something else? Because you know, he, doesn't have, he doesn't know all these races. Is a halfling half of two things? Would that make him a quarterling? Or is that three quarters human? What is a halfling half of? And they, then there's a whole conversation for 10 minutes where they're trying to explain what a halfling is and how the race is combined. So he's not technically a quarterling and that's not what he should be referred to as. It might be taken as negative. Um, 
So let's see, what we got here? So again, like I said, they asked, so, but you're sure we need him? And Red goes, fate brought, him, brought us to him. And I've learned long ago to trust in fate. One way or another, it will come of benefit. I just slurped out my straw, and I apologize. Hey, Builder. Dina kind of, it, it looks at Red for a minute, and he, he sees her working something out, and she says to him then, may I ask a question about fate? Red's like, of course. She's like, does that mean fate has take, takes is the absence of choice? I mean, if we're fated to do things, do we really have any option in the in in the matter, do we have any any choice in what's happening if everything we do is is all subject to fate? And Red says, "Well, that's a very good question. Fate doesn't work quite like that." He goes, "Fate, the power of fate, as those who who believe in and follow the way of fate, the way that we understand fate to work is different than that. You always have choice in life. Fate is a path, but just like walking down the path, you can change your path at any time." And fate will adjust based on the path that you're taking. Um, imagine, if you will, that you reach a point in your life, you get to make a decision. And that decision will have a large ramifications on the rest of your life. So you're traveling through the woods and you come across a large tree. Well, you can go right to go around the tree, you can go left to go around the tree. A very simple decision. Well, let's say that you choose to go left and halfway around the tree, you find there's a well-made path that goes off in one direction. So you decide to follow that path. Following that path, you come to a village. And in that village, you fall in love with someone. And you end up living in that village. And maybe it, that village is on the side of an ocean. And then you end up becoming a fisherman. And you raise family and children. And you live happily and healthily there the rest of your life. That would not have happened if you'd gone to the right. If you'd gone to the right, halfway around the tree, you would have tripped over a half-buried chest. In that chest was a large amount of gold and jewels of incredible wealth. Take the wealth with you and you travel and continue around the tree as you'd originally planned. And you continue on that direction. You use that money to buy yourself a life of ease. Maybe you buy several businesses and you end up becoming a merchant and so on and so forth. And now you're living in a completely different city overseeing different business. A very different life completely. Fate itself leads you based on the choices you're on. And yes, there can be things it will lead you towards. But fate also has specific moments, specific times. Imagine, if you would, that there are points of existence that, not, I mean, not just your fate, the fate of others hangs in the balance of that moment. Continue with our previous example. What if, as a fisherman, you find that there's a city far to the north that's in need of, uh, you know, due to hunger or whatever, and you could take a lot of fish up there and make a lot of money. So you gather up a, your crew and you gather up a large amount of your stock and you head north to that city. When you're in that city, you stay at an inn. And in that inn, a fight breaks out and you have the option to save a young woman's life. Imagine you'd taken the other path in your life. Wealthy person, now you're a merchant lord. You find out that there's trade to be made with a new kingdom up in the north. A new king there is looking for, to buy valuable resources because his people are having problems because there's been a drought and because of that, crops are affected. So you gather some of your uh, employees and you decide to head north to try to strike up a trade bargain with this king. On the way, you stop in a small city and you stay at an inn. In the middle of, that, of your stay there, 
fight breaks out, and you're given the opportunity to save a young woman. You've lived completely different lives at this point, whether you've chosen left or right back at that tree. But fate has still managed to bring you back to a very specific point in time where the fate of not just your life, but the fate of this young woman's life, is going to be based on a decision of whether or not you choose to intervene. That is fate. does not determine all and everything that we do, but there are points in lives that can be called focal points, or focal points of time, if you will. Now, some people may go through their whole lives without ever coming across a time like that. You live your life, your fate was to live just a regular life without problems. And then there are some people whose focal points are so important, and that moment in that, that fate is so powerful that it could affect the lives of hundreds, thousands, millions. Fate will find a way to bring you to where you need to be for that decision, for that moment. And what happens after that, what will fate do with you then, will all depend on what happens in that focal point, that moment in time that you have to do. Do you save the young woman? Do you stay out of the trouble? What if you just step in and you end up saving her, but you die in the meantime? What if you stay out of it, she dies in the meantime? You don't know this person. A million different things could happen in that situation. You step in, try to intervene, you get arrested. Find out she, turns out she's a criminal. You know, there's so many different things that could happen there. And what your life will be after that moment will be dependent upon that. So if there are paths. You can take paths as often as you'd like. You can take another road at an intersection. But for many people, all roads still lead to one place, at which point you can then take any road to leave. That's kind of how followers of fate view fate. Fate is that power that pulls you. How or why, no one knows. Is it some type of an intelligent thing? Is it just the natural order? That's the one thing they don't know. But they know fate is powerful, and everyone is affected by it. So I just want to give I was asked some more about uh, how his powers work and how fate worked, and this was an opportunity I wanted to share that with everybody. Fate is funny, Gorb. Fate can also be cruel. Some people's fate is not always good, right? So, so after you kind of explain that type of thing, talk about that, answer her questions, by that point it's late in the evening, they decide to call it a night, return to the rooms, get some rest to prepare for the next day. The next morning they sell their horses because um, they're going into a swamp. Not a place to have horses, especially a little pony. You're probably going to have to go through water. There may be swimming involved. These are things they have to be aware of. Gorb says, I wonder how many funny things could happen. It's very true. In many ways, if I, if I may step out here and, and explain a little bit more about this, um, my idea of fate and concept um, is very much along the same type of concept that you see in comic books. Let's look at the Marvel comic books and movies that are out there now and with the concept of the multiverse, Right? Based on the comic books versions of the multiverse, when you make a decision, when you reach the every time you make a decision or every time something happens, that creates a new break in the line, right? In, in my example, now there are two timelines: one where I went left around the tree, one where I went right around the tree. Those timelines exist. They're separate stories, separate timelines. Those are two different people, for all intents and purposes. But in any, any given decision, there's literally an infinite amount of choices, right? 
What if a branch fell on me and killed me? What if I tripped and fell in a hole and broke my foot? And, and a wolf ate me. There's a there's a hundred thousand, an infinite amount of things that could happen. A dragon could happen to fall down and eat me, or save me at that moment. There's so many different things that could happen in them, and each one of those creates a new break in time, the multiverse. And imagine if the multiverse was the same way, and that no matter what decisions you made created an infinite amount of paths of life and existence, but imagine if all of those at some point still reached the same point. And at that point, splits out again. If it all came to a point, then at that point, you would have to think, okay, something has to be guiding that. For this infinite amount of things to all reach that exact same decision, it's just mathematically not impossible. Something would have to be guiding that. So that's kind of the difference between the, the multiverse concept and the, my concept of fate, because in fate, it doesn't create two new worlds, much as it does. It just means there were, there were options, and what everybody else, the options that now exist for everybody else, that ramifications of that have now been changed. Let's think about uh, the whole concept of if you went back in time and stepped on a butterfly and then returned to the normal time, and now dinosaurs rule the world. You, you did something that... There's a movie about that, by the way. I can't remember the name, but it was actually really good. Uh, but if you, you go back, you change something in time, and now the future is completely different, right? One small act can have insane ramifications. So if fate is like that, right, and there are certain points where a certain decision will affect everybody after that, that's what a focal point is. Most focal points are for a person's specific life. But some people, let's just say hypothetically, oh, I don't know, Seraph, who has been foretold that at one point in his life, he will have to make a decision. And no matter what you do, what happens, he can't be killed. They've tried. But he can't be killed because no matter what happens, Seraph will be there to make that decision. And that decision will have an effect on all of existence after that. Now, the part of this group of people don't know about that, right? Butterfly Effect was a great movie. Yes, it was. Thank you very much, Ashley. Probably my favorite Ashton Kutcher movie, I would say. Or a better favorite Ashton Kutcher thing. But, uh, but yes, right? So, it's foretold that Seraph... His whole prophecy is that one day, now at this point, it's going to, it breaks down to he's going to have to make a choice at one point that's going to decide chaos or order. It's this game of the gods that's going on right now. You know, for everyone else, Mercy and them, they know about this. Now the other party knows, right? Because the uh, Quint Quintius, the magical scepter, has told artists and their friends that this is going on, that at some point, Seraph's going to have to make a decision and it affects the world. So people have learned, okay villains. We can't kill Seraph. We can't stop him from making this choice. What we can try to do is make him make the choice that's going to benefit us. So we need to push him that way. Whereas the people who may have been happy with the choice he made originally, came back from time, want to try to keep him on that same path. So either way he's going to get there, but we want him to get there as close to the way he would have gone there originally. So that way, it's a better chance he'll make the same decision. So, the whole thing that Red is talking about, 
we're learning, is very, very linked to Seraph's story at this point as well. Which would imply that fate, this force, whatever it is that Red uh, believes in or worships, however you want to call it. He doesn't have like a, a church and prayers about it, but he basically believes in it and puts his faith in it. That it's also very much in key with what's going on in Seraph's life. And if we think about that, and we link that to the words of the prophecy, that also helps that prophecy make a little bit more sense. For the last of your line shall be a great king. He will be a child of destiny. And only the blood of his kin can destroy him. So we look at that line, he'll be a He'll be the child of destiny, destiny and fate. Very often two words that go hand in hand. But it doesn't say he'll be a child of fate. So is destiny something different? Or is it another name for fate? We all know that artists managed to get a sword. It's a whole part of the story early on. If you missed that, definitely should go back and listen. Has a sword that she found that's named destiny. That she was told to hang on to until the day it was needed by uh, by the bearer. And the assumption is that Seraph is that person. I haven't talked about that sword in a very long time. A lot of people forget. I was mentioning with a few people today that have, or, or yesterday that were Merge Worlds fans, and they'd totally forgotten about that sword. Like, yeah, that sword never popped up in the story again afterwards. They got from that stupid room with the three boxes. But it's out there. Supposedly it's important. I can guarantee you it's important. I've known what that thing's been. <laughs> that thing has had a very specific purpose for a very, very long time. 15 years at this point, I've known what that's going to be for, and yet I've never brought it up in the story again. It's out there. We're going to see it again. And there's still a third box in that room. Something else to think about. So again, a lot of those things are out there. So is is Destiny the Sword? Is that part of the prophecy? There's a lot of different ways prophecies can work out. But it definitely, if we look at the way that Red explains how his fate, the force that he believes in in fate, it would very likely show that Seraph is somehow, his existence is entwined with fate. And it would sure make sense why Red at some point would become linked with him. So a little bit of of history on fate and such there. But I thought it was going to be important to the story to kind of connect those dots for people and explain fate a little bit more. As I have mentioned, it is going to become a bigger part of the story as we continue to move forward. Uh, so anybody has questions about how fate works or anything, feel free to throw them in the chat. I'd be happy to address it. I'm probably going to be here in December. I'm going to set aside a special uh, stream date to do an a-, a Merge Worlds AMA for maybe like an hour one night. Jump on a different... No, I won't do it on a Merge Worlds night. I'll set it aside for a different separate stream jump in and do some recaps and answering questions about Merge Worlds and D&D. I haven't done one of those in about six months, so I wouldn't care to jump in and do another one. <clears throat> but back to the story. Back to the story. I know I keep going off on a rant tangents. So the next day they sell the, the horses and stuff. They're not going to do them any good in the swamp. Gather a little bit of extra supplies and restock on the things they may have used up over the last five to six days and proceed to leave the city. When they reach the city gates, the guards let them out, but there's no sign of ward. Uh, they, they wait a couple minutes, they hang out, they watch, but it's assumed Ward at this point, unfortunately, has chosen not to go with them. So, without much, uh, without many other options, they begin to make their way north to the swamp. Now, the swamp is 500 feet away, technically. It's, it's held at bay, kind of, by this little circle of, of desert. Um, but then it grows and gets worse as they go north. So, where am I at? Okay. So... 
as they're uh, making their way into the swamp, they're about to really enter into the swamp proper. When from behind a tree, Ward steps out. A backpack strapped on his back, a little bedroll. And it uh, looks like he has everything of, of value that he owns on him, which is not a whole lot. Red, of course, just smiles like he expected it the whole time. And the others, of course, welcome in. Ah, you decided to come after all. Ward's like, well, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't really have a lot of choice. Went back to where I spend the nights, and uh, the whole place had been tossed by the city guard. Stash was out there trying to track me down. I'm not sure exactly why, but I think my run-in with you probably set off some alarms, and uh, seems he wants to have a talk with me for some reason. I thought it might be better, the best time possible, to consider moving on from the city <laughs> before... Uh, Something bad happened to me. Uh, maybe staying wasn't as uh, as safe as I thought it was. Uh, my life was in danger either way. So you guys seem like a nice lot. And uh, if what you're telling me is true, there's a chance I could make my fortune. I guess I'm going to take it. So they're all like, welcome aboard. And they're like, well, they've already been introduced, but reintroduced. And, and, and Ward has joined their group. So now the group is six people. group is growing. So at this point, they uh, they enter into the swamp and begin to continue, or they continue heading north into the swamp proper. Now, the swamp itself is teeming with life. Massive amounts of life. So it's not like they get in there, it's like a haunted swamp, and it's all deathly quiet. Now you can hear frogs and bugs and probably... Cats meowing like big tigers and stuff. They see all sorts of stuff when they get in there, uh, from like the frogs and all that, small animals running around, probably big snakes sliding all over the place. So um, they get in there and it's it's just instantly teeming with amounts of life. But it is very mucky, and there are places where it's drier and places where it is not. And sometimes they're walking around shin deep in water making their way through the swamp and the mud as they travel. So travel is not fast. Um, as the, the worst part overall of anything else, of course, and this is just true if you've ever been in a swamp, is the insects. Just teeming with insects. Uh, the weather here is not too warm. It's just a bit muggy. Um, but they're very hot because, unfortunately, they're having to wear as many clothes as they can. They've got their face covered as much as they can. Any place where there's open skin runs the risk of mosquito bites or, or, or worse, potentially. Uh, so they're, they're definitely having to struggle because of that. Tons and tons of uh, living things in this area. Um, of course, as they travel, Seraph asks, okay, well, we have Ward now. Where are we going next? And Red, much to the surprise, goes, to be honest... I don't know. He goes, all I know is that we're, we need to continue into the swamp. At this point, I've not yet been directed. I've not seen anything that leads me towards a specific place. But I have complete faith that I'll, we'll find it eventually. So we're just going to make our way into the swamp. And uh, we will we'll find what needs to be found when we get there. The group is not the most reassured by this, right? Especially Ward, who's new. He's like, what? I'm in here and you don't know where we're going, <laughs> you know? The others have seen now this, the way Red works. He's seen this fate in action. It led them to Ward. It's led them to what they need. So they're like, okay, we've got some faith in you and that it works, but this is still not the most confidence thing building. Ward, not so much. So he's like, but he can't turn around and just go back himself. He's, that's unfortunately no longer an option. I ancient. 
So they continue their way north. They know that they have to go deeper into the swamp, but how far and for how long, they do not know. I can say that over the next five days, they have a very, very rough time of it. The very first night that they camped, they almost lost Mugen in the middle of the night, awoken by his pistol cracking, going off, shooting. At the time, uh, Deacon was on guard, and they rush over to where Mugen was, was staying. They found a flat, dry area. And his poor boy was completely wrapped up by a huge snake that was attempting to smother and crush him. They had to cut the snake off to save his life. Luckily, he was able to get his pistol out, and he keeps it loaded. Had it not been for that, they might have awoken to find their small friend gone and swallowed. The second, next day, the same day, if they wake up the next day, traveling through this, they were attacked by a group of giant mosquitoes that averaged two feet in length. Their tongues, the things spiking in front, like sharp and long like swords, were forced to fight to defend themselves as the creatures would have clearly sucked them completely dry of blood. No, they're not friends of Sarah's. During this fight, Red proved himself to be an exceptional fighter, fast and well-skilled and trained with his rapier. And Ward even showed some skills. Turns out he's very good at throwing daggers and was able to help. And Dina herself was able to bring one down. Able to finally kill enough of them that the last few flew off looking for easier targets. But this let them know that there's very large things in here that they have to be more careful of. Two days later after that, which would have been their third day, they were forced to wade through a thick marsh area. There was just no way around it. Um, all the way up to like, you know, like their stomachs and such. Deacon carried Mugen on his back because it, the water's just too deep for Mugen. And who knows, it could get deeper when they get in there, right? They're poking it with sticks and such. And uh, Seraph literally just walked behind Deacon, who had Mugen on his back and red, and they're poking with sticks to make sure they don't snow sinkholes. Uh, and he just basically walked along holding Dina completely out of the water the best he could. As they finally made their way across and got out of that stanky pool of swamp water, they were shocked and disgusted to find their bodies were completely covered in leeches. And they had nothing, they had to try to remove them. But these leeches had harder shells than normal and were hard and were almost impossible to pry off. They had no other option but to burn them off. So, as you can imagine, even around where the leeches had been burned off, they burnt skin and such as well. Overall, they're having a miserable time in this swamp. It's not a friendly place. You wouldn't want to go there on vacation. But they're made through all of these struggles, fighting their way through, trying to just continue on. At this point, still with no real target. This brings us to the fifth day. As they've been traveling through the swamp, there's been one thing that they've noticed easily. Things are getting bigger. Uh, the mosquitoes being an example. But by things, I mean mostly the plants. They're getting to bigger and bigger and older and older trees. And there's large trees that are just much larger than they normally expect. So huge, gigantic trees growing out of the ground at this point, covered in vines and moss and all that kind of stuff. Dra uh, Gorbass, Draven, why in the world would I go to swamp vacation? Gorb, I don't know you that well. You might love swamps. I'm just trying to be helpful. <laughs> As they're making their way by a exceptionally large tree, one larger than any of them ever seen, even in the old forests of Serenity, Mugen makes a comment. 
He stops and looks at the tree and goes, Wow, you could fit a whole house in there. Deacon, Dean, and Seraph all kind of have a chuckle. It's like, it's true. You could probably live inside of one of those things. Red here just stops, and his eyes kind of glaze over for a moment. And they even say, Red, you all right? And he doesn't answer. His eyes literally almost start to go a little bit white. He glazes over. Growing concerned, Seraph steps up and puts his hand on his shoulder, which kind of brings him back. He's like, what? He goes, are you all right, my friend? You kind of went out of it there for a moment. And Red looks at him and smiles. He goes, yes, I'm all right. And he looks down at Mugen and he goes, and you're correct, my friend. You could put a whole house in one of these. I know what I'm looking for. He says, come with me. And begins to walk off into the woods. Slightly different path than they were originally taking. I was like, okay, well, let's catch up to that. Start rushing after Red. Over the next hour, Red continues to move through the swamp. And he seems to be stopping at a lot of the large trees. Checking them. Looking up at their height. And checking the trees around it. Then moving on. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't ask. But... People do, or, but they're, they're curious, but they try not to interlude. He's obviously looking for something. And so they follow him over the next hour. Finally, at the end of the hour, they come to a tree that seems even a little bit larger than the other ones. And he gets it, and he looks up, and he goes, this one, this one will do. And he turns to Seraph, and he goes, Seraph, do you think you could climb this tree? Do you think you could get to the very top and try to see what you can see around here? Seraph looks at the tree and checks it out, and he goes, yeah, I could get up there. It looks like it's a little got some moss on it that's a little slick, but there's a lot of branches and vines. I shouldn't have any problems. And he takes this stuff off and leaves it with his friends, Deacon and stuff, and he probably brings his sword with him, because who knows what's living up in the tree. But he doesn't need his bed and all the other stuff he's got on his back. So we kind of set that down. Oh, wait, see here. Biggest D12 and 20 I've ever seen. Imagine. Oh, yes. These are lamps. I also have a, a, another big D20. Uh, that's a ceramic pen holder my wife got at me for my anniversary uh, just last month that I haven't quite found a place to set it up yet, but I'm going to. I think I want to get a little D&D plushie or something to stick out of it. Yes, I love big dice. And I cannot lie. So, um, so Sarah begins to climb his way up this tree. And it is slippery at points, but I mean, Seraph, if he needs to, can literally dig his fingers into the wood. Right? I mean, he's just, he's strong enough to do that. And so as he's climbing, it's at points where he can't get a grip, he can't. And of course, he's also incredibly dexterous and fast, so he starts making his way up this tree. The tree is clearly larger than the other trees around it. And he makes it all the way up to the top. And sure enough, this tree pokes out a little bit above, above most of the trees surrounding it. Not all of them, but most of it. And he's able to get a good look around and see the sunlight for the first time. He starts looking around to see what he can see. And as he turns to the northwest, he stops. And he smiles. Taking another quick moment to look the rest of the directions, he begins making his way back down to his friends. He's able to see great distance. So as he makes his way down and lands, he looks at Red, Red looks at him, and Red just gets a big smile. He goes, you saw something, didn't you? And Seraph goes... I did. I did. He goes, to the northwest is a tree. And when I say this tree is large, I can't begin to describe it. It stands head and foot taller than every tree around it. It's massive. 
It's huge. I could I never even thought a plant could begin to grow that big. But definitely, it stands out from all the other trees I could see in every other direction. And Red goes, <laughs> and, and, and all the friends kind of look at each other, and Deacon goes, "Well, I guess north, nor, sorry, northeast, not northwest. Northeast is the the direction we're headed." Then, and Red goes, "Most assuredly." Seraph gathers his things, and now with an actual target, a place to go, they start making their way there a little bit faster. A little bit of reading. Seraph had not been exaggerating. The tree was monstrous. It was easily over 150 feet in diameter, and its top was lost in the canopy above. To give you an example of the size of this tree, 150 feet in diameter. The largest known tree in America, or in, or in, the, in the world, is 63 feet, when I looked it up. Or was it 36 feet? So there's a three and a six. But either way, it's way smaller than 150 feet. Uh, this is literally a huge building-sized tree. Okay, Roots as thick as Seraph was tall stretched hundreds of yards in all directions. It was honestly an amazing sight to behold. How did it get so large? asked Seraph. It's unimaginable. I don't think it's natural, said Deacon. Look at the overall color and shape of it. It's wood. I've seen no other tree in this swamp that looks anything like that. Not a single tree looks like this tree, even a smaller version. He goes, I'd wager magic was the cause of what we see before us. Ward, of course, then begins spit on the ground and made some type of strange gesture with his hands. Likely some type of ward against evil. Because you can imagine that. Like people have those. like Cross fingers or whatever. Evil eye. All that kind of stuff. Uh, being a simple person, he's like, oh, evil. Don't like that. This is what we've come for, my friends, said Red. Now let's see if we can find a way inside. Like, inside? Okay. They begin to start searching around the base of this tree. And again, remember, it's huge. Big vines coming out. You can walk in under them. Start looking around. It's a lot of territory to cover. They search for several hours with no luck. They do find a little kind of cubby curved area in between some of the roots at the base of the tree. That's uh, a little bit higher where the root has pulled the dirt up some. So it's dry there. It's a big, relatively flat area. They decide to make a camp there for the night at the base of the tree and continue searching it the next day. Paper sticking together. So they go ahead and rest. Now, I'm going to begin this, this evening by stating that party order is important in Dungeons & Dragons. And party order is literally the order that you travel. So not that everybody is always walking in a straight row. But if these six people were walking down a hallway that was really only wide enough for one person to go at a time... The question is, in what order would they go down this hallway? That's incredibly important in Dungeons & Dragons, party order. Because if they're walking down this hallway, and the person at the front sets off a trap, and the trap is strong enough that it hurts the first three people, as a dungeon master, I need to know which those three people are. If suddenly something comes from behind and attacks them, and the only person who can defend them is the person in the back, I need to know who's in the back. Right? If Let's look at the main group, right? If Dandy's in the back and Darsh is in the front 
and Dandy only has ranged weapons, and the guy in front of her is ten times taller than her, she does not have a lot of options to be able to help in combat in this hallway. Whereas Darsh could easily swing his sword or throw things over Dandy's head. So knowing your party order, the standard party order is important. With the most important rule in the world, keep the squishies in the middle. Squishies are going to normally be your mages or clerics. Uh, they're the squishy ones. Keep them in the middle because those are the ones you got to protect while they're doing their spells and healing you and keeping you alive. Ashley says, roll a six-sided to find secret door. That is accurate. That's how we do secret door. So, to give you an example of what we're looking at for party order in this situation, okay? Red is in the lead. In this situation, because he's being led by fate. He's going to be the one to know where they're going before anyone else. After him is going to come Deacon and then Mugen. After that is where we're going to find Ward. Normally you'd think you'd put the rogue in the front which so they could check for traps. But can Ward even do that? They have very little knowledge on Ward yet. They're not even sure why they have him here. They just know they need him. At this point, he's also the most inexperienced. And we want to keep him squishied in the middle. Him and Dina, are in, he and Dina are in the middle with Seraph at the back. Um, yes, Seraph is the strongest and the fastest. Um, so if anybody attacks from the rear, he can protect everybody. Uh, but he also has the option of, in a regular situation, if there's not a roof right over his head, Seraph could feasibly jump over the other five. He just has that ability. He's that strong, and he has that much agility. He could literally jump over the other five if he needs to. But in most situations, if they're just traveling across the woods or whatever, in that order, he can just run around them super fast. So Sarah can be where he needs to be very, very quickly. Now, in many situations, that's usually also the order that people take when they take their turns at watch at night. Um... Ward is not taking a turn doing that. Uh, Ward has no experience doing that, and they're just not comfortable putting him in that position. They're, they're good with Red doing it, but Dina, they also don't have her taking. And it's not because she's incapable at this point, it's just because she's inexperienced. Very often, she'll take a turn with Seraph. And that's some time that they just kind of have together every day when everyone else is sleeping. So, when Dina takes a turn at watch, which she is does, she does with Seraph, she doesn't take it alone. Okay? Um, but Ward would get a whole night's sleep at this current point. So it's kind of giving you a heads up on that, because it will matter as we move forward in the story. Not in the immediate future, but in the relative future. So. It's nearly middle of the night. Well, it's midnight-ish. We're on second watch. When Deacon raises the alarm to waken everyone. Now, he's not super, super loud with it. They're going to have ways to do that. You know, they think someone's out there. But he wakens everyone. Everyone gets up quickly and arms himself. Ward, as soon as he's told that there's something going on, gets grabs his weapons and stuff too. He doesn't want to die. Ward's immediate self-preservation. Um, he would not be as experienced in battle formations and such like some of these other would. Um... But still, he grabs his weapon quickly and, and hops up, prepared to do what's going on. Deacon gathers with them. And I want to mention, again, that they're kind of in a, in a, in a, a dead-end alleyway, right? There's these big roots that come up. And they come in and they kind of curve around. There, there's the base of the tree. It's hollow. And the roots come out. And they found this area up against the tree they could make a little camp in. It does put a nice wall at their back, but it also keeps them funneled into this area. 
Deacon backs up some with the rest of them so that the fire is kind of between them and whatever's out there. Small fire they have. And Deacon quickly lets them know that he heard something moving around out there. Now, this is obviously not a frog or a squirrel. Deacon's not going to wake him up for that. He's a smart young man. He's going to know that whatever that is, something's being careful not to be heard, and he managed to hear it anyways, or something that doesn't care if he gets heard is moving around up there. Both would be a concern. Once Seraph is aware of what's going on, quick couple words to Deacon, and he moves forward to douse the fire. And the fire itself isn't huge and burning at this point. I said it was rather warm out, so they didn't have a large fire, just a little bit of light. But he manages to cover the fire and douse it, kick some flames, or so that at this point it's just barely a glowing ember. And he does that, and he takes several steps past the fire and crouches with his weapons drawn, looking out towards the swamp. And he does this for a very good reason. He wants his infravision to kick in. He wants to be able to see what's going on out there. Um, the only people in the group with infravision, for sure, are Seraph and Mugen. Mugen's is much more limited. Not horrible, but limited. Ward might, they don't know, it's not really come up. If it does, it's still not going to be that good. But Seraph's, he got from both his mother and father, who both have incredibly good infravision. Seraph, again, yes. Overpowered in many ways. Which is important why Seraph was never a playable character. He was always an NPC. He was too powerful to be a player character. But Seraph, Seraph stops and begins watching. And as the things change, he starts to see the shapes, and he very quickly manages to see them moving ahead of him. There are three large things moving in front of him, moving ever closer, very quietly and very deathly. As they're slowly approaching, preparing to pounce, Seraph calls out the word, command, not now, but something like that, a word that would let no needs to be done. <clears throat> Deacon, who had been sitting there preparing a spell, ready, immediately casts his spell, which causes the flames of the fire to burst high. So he just he casts his spell in the flame. <laughs> Now, everyone in their group, maybe without the exception of Ward, is prepared for this. It's something that they would have talked about ahead of time. Seraph is prepared for this. It's one of the reasons that the light's behind him. But even that flash of light is still going to mess with his vision for a couple seconds as his eyes adjust. But it's even more surprising to the three immense panthers that were slowly, slowly making their way towards him. Now, when I say immense, bodies, not counting tails, bodies averaging 8 to 10 feet in length, standing close to 5 to 6 feet at shoulder. 4 feet at shoulder, mathematically. 4.5 feet at shoulder. So, very big, big panthers. The, f the light, for just a moment, catches them unaware, and instinctually it stops them from pouncing, and then Seraph bursts forward uh, to the closest one to him. So, at this point, we roll for initiative. Party order. Uh, combat begins. Seraph rushes in and immediately begins to swing his blades, uh, attacking the closest central panther. The panther is huge. 
I've mentioned this. Uh, as such, bigger thing, thicker the skin, right? This is an issue to be dealt with. Uh, if I stab you as a regular person with a sword, it's going to do a whole heck of a lot of damage. If I stab someone who's a hill giant, I'd like stabbing him with a thumbtack kind of thing. So the amount of damage you can do can definitely differ based on what type of weapon you have and what you're fighting. His swords are deadly sharp and can still slice through meat, but it's also got thick tufts of fur over it, and so it just doesn't cleave an arm off like it would for a regular person. And the panther itself uh, is also very quick to defend itself with a huge jaw of teeth and massive razor-sharp talons that could rend flesh from a seraph very easily. So battle begins. Immediately, the other two panthers begin to move forward. It's unsure of whether or not they're going to help attack Seraph or come after the other ones. But the group of heroes enact immediately. Deacon once again fires a blast of flame, this time towards one of the panthers, whose fur catches a blaze. This panther immediately starts backing up, howling in pain, because fire does that. The other panther was the source of attack from the others. So Ward threw a couple of his daggers. He has several. Deacon had already cast his spell. Right? So we just said that. And then um, Mugen fires his pistol. This definitely gets the attention of the other uh, tiger or panther that's not in combat officially with anyone and draws it towards them, at which point Red moves forward already as this was going on. Red was moving forward to kind of tank this other uh, panther, if you would. So as he moves forward, of course, Deacon, after his spell, draws his weapon and moves forward to help join Red against this second panther. Mugen reaches behind him and pulls his large hammer off his back. And then, with just a quick pause, reaches down and grabs his pistol and grabs the little bag off his belt and holds them out to Dina. Dina takes them from him, and he looks at her and goes, Don't shoot me! And then turns and runs after his friends. The cats, of course, are incredibly fast, as cats are. And Seraph is in quite a fight. Um, this panther he's dealing with was the larger of the three, and it's claws and attacking, and fortunately his speed is even better, and that's that's what's getting him out of the way. He's only getting some opportunities to, to attack himself. A lot of it's just moving and dodging from the cat. And as they're fighting, he finds himself moving a bit further away from the others, not purposely being pulled away, but just in the manner of their movements, he and this panther are kind of fighting, moving out a little bit. Um... Seraph manages to score several good stabs in the arms and shoulder of the cat, but the cat does well to protect its stomach and neck, and he can't get a clear cut at either of these more prime areas of attack, uh, which could do considerably more damage. The burning tiger at this point appears to have fled. In fact, this, there's still the stink in the air of burning fur, but the panther itself has run off into the... and, and no more is there a sight of its light. Um... As they're fighting, Seraph uh, manages to get in a good blow, finally, and he manages to cut a huge chunk out of the front shoulder. But by doing so, unfortunately, he left himself open, and the panther with its other claw rends him three real sharp cleaves in his own flesh right on his side, which, the, A, it's sharp, it rips right into his flesh, and B, the punch of it sends him in the air 
and he loses uh, his sword. It falls out of his hands, and he hits the ground hard behind him. The panther rushes in, uh, and even though he's in pain, Seraph quickly you know, takes to his feet just in time to reach the panther, but now he's having to fight it uh, with his fists. Now, Red and Deacon are working well together. Uh, the two of their fighting styles are not drastically different, other than Deacon occasionally can bring magic in. But these two are really too hard-pressed melee to be able to stop and cast any spells at this point. Uh, the two of them together are almost a seraph. You know what I mean? It, it's taking both of them. Mugen, of course, rushed in immediately um, and without even slowing down, just ran right past his friends between the two of them, Red and Deacon, and right underneath the cat. <laughs> and doing his best to attack the cat from underneath. And that's the thing that's really helping Red and Deacon the most, is the cat is trying to attack them, but it still keeps getting hit, and it's trying to protect its underbelly, which if you've ever had a cat and you tried to rub its belly when it didn't want it, you know that's not easy. <laughs> so Mugen is sitting there and smacking away at this, and the cat keeps trying to jump away, and then they get into combat again, and Mugen runs right in there doing the same thing. Um... While that's being relatively successful, they are still taking some hits themselves. Not quite as bad as Sarah's most recent one, but both of them at this point have taken several injuries. Uh, and Mugen's biggest concern is that they succeed and kill it, and then this cat just falls on top of him, and he gets squished. Wade and Dean are kind of still in the back, trying to figure out exactly what they're going to do here. And Wade's like, okay, I got two more daggers. I don't want to throw them in this swamp at night and not be able to find them. And then I'm sitting here barehanded. So he's got his knives out and he's kind of, in his mind, he goes, I'll protect her. That's what I'm doing. I'll protect her. That's my job. You know, just in case, I'll protect her. <laughs> he's just kind of staying in the back just in case needed. Dina occasionally firing the pistol loading it. She's a little, she's not as fast as, as, as Mugen is, but she's been learned to reload it. And right now, she's not under any pressure. She has the ability to do that. Uh, her shots are okay. Remember, she doesn't have infravision, so she's trying to shoot into the dark towards these shapes that she sees because everyone's ran past the fire now. So you can see her friend's backs and then the big thing, the light glowing off its eyes. It's not a clear shot, but the tiger is, or the panther is big enough that she has hit it once or twice Um but again, like I talked about with size, doesn't do quite as much damage. It'll hurt. It's like getting shot with a BB gun. Like a, it hurts, but it's not going to kill you. Seraph is fighting for his life at this point. The cat is trying to literally bite, just clump down on his neck and shoulders. And he's having to punch or dodge or even claw. And claw is the big thing. Um, with nothing other options at hand at this point, Seraph trying to think of a better way of saying this than vamps out, but literally goes into that that blood frenzy type mode that he has done several times. His fingernails literally, he will literally grow into longer claws. His fangs start to protrude. His eyes start to get that liquid blood over them where his eyes are just red. This one, of course, being a bit more controlled. So most of the time we've seen this, it's when he's been very angry or emotions are high. And they are in this situation as well, but it's this one's a bit more controlled. And so he's literally with claw and tooth fighting the panther that has much bigger claws and tooth. Um, and it finally bites down on his shoulder, and he feels it in there hard. And it hurts, and he screams out in pain, of course. Um, 
But with it on there, he's able to kind of get a grip around the thing's neck itself. And he takes his claws and literally just starts shredding at the thing's neck. Cleaving. Digging. Now, Panther, knowing this is an issue, is now trying to get away from him, but he's holding it with one hand because he's stronger than the cat. In the- but it's, it's, it's a strenuous hold, and this arm, as you know, is going to get weaker if he's got tooth marks and it, it's bleeding. But he starts literally digging through this cat's flesh. While that is going on, uh, Deacon and Red are doing well, but unfortunately, that tiger successfully manages to get a very hard hit on Deacon. Uh, it's more of a, of, of almost a punch with the pods. A little bit of cut, but more of just a batting away. You see, if you've ever seen a cat bat at something, you know what I'm talking about. He can get some range on that. And with a good, clean hit, manages to bat away Deacon the same time that uh, the opening gives Red a chance to, to get a good, clean hit. But Deacon is thrown backwards. Ashley says, I'm thinking is there are no healers in this party. Kind of correct. <laughs> You're kind of. They do have some healing potions. They do have some of that. They brought a decent amount of that with them. Um, and Seraph doesn't need them. With enough time, he'll heal his his regeneration will heal him naturally. I mean, he's not going to be okay in an hour from the wounds he has right now. He's not going to grow back an arm. It's not that good. But over time, as long as he has enough to drink. Seraph will heal just fine. So, <laughs> you're never without a drink when you travel with friends, right? <laughs> so Deacon gets smacked very, very hard. And goes flying backwards and hits the ground hard. From underneath the tiger... I keep saying tiger. From underneath the panther, a yell of, Bad kitty! Comes out. And Mugen thrashes hard, hitting the cat... Square in the groin with his warhammer. This, as you can imagine, gets its attention. And it kind of rears up a bit in pain. And two things happen at once. Red stabs forward. But it kind of jerks away and he misses. But as it does, it rears up as if to try to come back down and bite. There's another pop from behind them. And as the cat's coming down... The bullet goes in its mouth and rips out the side of its cheek. has enough strength to go through that. That's not enough to kill the cat, but it's sure enough to get its attention, stopping it from its attack, at which point, again, Red then has the opportunity to thrust forward and cleanly in his throat, able to shove right up with the sword. I don't care how big you are. I take a small, thin, long needle and I shove it into your throat. It's going to have an effect. The cat begins to gurgle and choke, and it tries to it pulls away, and Red loses his sword for a minute, and the thing tries to gurgle and leave, but it starts to fall sideways, at which point Mugen, again, rushing in as it's starting to get lower, and starts beating it on it with that hammer as hard as he possibly can, until finally the cat stops moving. It gets very squished in those moments. The cat in Seraph's arm shudders for the last time. Not only the blood flowing loosely from its throat, 
not just because Seraph was had dug through so deep that it had hit a major vein slash artery, but then Seraph did what only Seraph can do. He began to drink, and that action drains strength on whatever he's drinking from. And while it doesn't have quite the effect as a humanoid's blood, it does help him. And he drinks for a minute. So by the time he lets go of the cat that's shrinking, Seraph, still all the wounds. He hasn't healed from any of that, but it did help drain the cat and weaken it. He's he's just covered head to toe in blood at this point, right? He's He's got this thing in a headlock and he's digging at its throat. The blood's just coming all down him. Then he shoves his face up in there. You can imagine the dude is just blanketed in blood at this point. Not for the first time. Sure not for the last. Yes, he can drink from non-human sources, Ashley. Yes, it will serve to help sate hunger for a very small period of time, but it does not boost his regeneration. Uh, and there are even some humanoids that if he were to drink from, it would not, like, it, he, he couldn't drink from, uh, what was the one we used? A kobold, for example. Uh, just, they're so close to animal, it just it wouldn't work that way. But some of the more intelligent ogres, orcs, things of that nature... If he could somehow get his hand on a troll, drinking a blood from a creature that regenerates that strong, probably would heal him faster than anything else I can think of at this point. But I can also guarantee you it would probably have some pretty rough side effects. So that's something else, right? Drinking something he's not drank before could be side effects. So in his little flask he keeps with him, it is definitely humanoid blood of a race at this point unconfirmed. Eating a bowl of radishes when you really want steak. Right. It's like if you're really hungry and you want food and all they have is kale, which is not food. That's the food my food eats. Yes, that would be a good example. If anybody out there likes kale and are offended by that, there's not much I can do for you. Kale's disgusting. But... <laughs> so the cats are gone. The third cat, at this point, completely gone. The one that caught on fire. No idea where it went. Everyone manages to crawl and lug themselves back. Deacon was winded, but not unconscious. They managed to bring him back, and everybody's in a relatively rough shape. They have no choice but to dip in to their potions of healing, which they try to save as much as possible. Potions of healing that have only a very minimal effect on Seraph. Seraph instead goes for his flask. Um, which his friends know about. Dina 100% knows about it. Dina probably knows more about it than even Deacon and Mugen know. Because that's one thing he doesn't talk to his friends. They know what it is and why he needs it. For sure. But they, no one ever, you know, even even his mom doesn't know where he and Draven go to get the blood they put in the flask. And he's been away from home a long time. He's emptied it and had to refill it. We haven't talked about that because he does that by himself. Uh, when and where to be determined. But yes, um, he has to go to his flask. Which doesn't heal him immediately, but it will help kick in the regeneration. So it will do better. Without much other option... They determine that sleeping on the ground is not going to be safe. They're going to try to climb up into the tree a bit. There's some branches that are relatively high. Um, 
they're going to be able to try to climb up there as best they can and try to stay a little bit higher above ground until morning comes when they can kind of assess the damage and see what they have to do. It takes some time due to their injuries, although several of them are mostly healed at this point. Nobody has any major injuries except for Seraph. Um, Red only took a couple small cuts. Uh, Deacon took a small cut and got winded. Mugen came through that relatively unscathed. Um, and then Ward and uh, Dina didn't take any damage at all. Seraph took the biggest hits. Um, and the potions don't work on him. So he has to kind of climb up almost one-armed, but he has to try and help it. Once he gets up there, he has to almost try to start pulling people up with a rope one-handed. Not everybody can climb. Ward, exceptionally good at climbing, turns out, and climbs up there almost as quickly as Seraph does. Well, in this situation especially, because he's got one arm. But even then, he would have given Seraph a run for his money. The night goes by without any further issues. The flaming cat does not return. And by the next morning when they awaken, most everyone else is feeling aches. I mean, what little sleep they got sitting in a, in a, on a... When I say it's a limb, it's big enough for two or three of them could sit beside each other. You know what I mean? you got to be careful sleeping like that, but it's relatively safe. Um, they manage to uh, make it through the evening. The third cat still has not returned, and they can see the other two cats lying on the ground. Dead at this point, probably already some small scavengers and bugs all over the place. You can imagine the mosquitoes and all the bugs that would be all over that thing, right? So they lug their way back down, but even by this point, Seraph is 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 already, I'd say, fifty percent healed. Um, he had to drink a lot, uh, which definitely cuts into his supply. Um, but he was able to do so enough, though, that most of the wounds. Uh, have at least scabbed over. Uh, they're still visible, and the pain underneath the injury is still under the skin. Some of that still needs to heal. But he's able to move his arm relatively well at this point. And they're able to climb down successfully. Now, at this point, they gather up their stuff, because they didn't have time to do that last night. They didn't know if that other cat was going to come back or if there'd be more. So they managed to gather up all their other stuff that they need. And without really any other option, they have to continue doing what they left off doing, is continue searching this tree seeing if they can find a way in. It takes two hours for them to succeed. They're almost on the far opposite side of the tree when finally it's Ward that finds the door. Everyone else uh, had kind of just passed over it. Uh, Ward had happened to notice shape-wise, like, that doesn't look right. And getting in close enough, sure enough, underneath a thick layer of moss and vines... There appears to be a metallic door behind it. Excitedly, the other friends come over and they start cleaning it off as best they can, ripping down the vines, cutting them and such. And it's actually uh, one single door, uh, but large, not like a giant large, but large enough that uh, Seraph would have to jump to touch the top of it. Um, and it appears to be, even though it's very old, not, not rusted in any way. It seems like in very good condition, although you can tell it's been there a very long time. There's no sign of hinges on the outside, so the hinges must be internal, which would lead them to believe that most likely the door goes inward. They check it carefully, and, and, and Deacon goes ahead and uses one of his spells. If he runs out, does Deacon turn into a juice box? We've never done that. That's a great question, Ashley. He, they've never done that. Seraph has never drank from any of his friends. It's one of those lines he refuses to cross. We know that Draven says the same thing, but when they were on his home world, he did drink from Tevin 
in order to heal from the horrendous wounds he had and in order to survive. And doing so also helps slow down Tevin's aging uh, so that he's actually looks less than half the age he really is. Um, although Draven and Tevin have a very clear understanding that when it comes Tevin's time, Draven will let him go. There's, I don't ever want to live forever. Again, he's a tribal, his way of life and, and being a god of healing. There's life and there's death. I'm part of that cycle. When my time comes, my time comes. If I got to live longer because of so and so, that's fine. But eventually my time will come and you need to let me go. Do not turn me in any way. Which they know is possible because uh, Daedalus, which is Draven's brother, did it to Shastra. Who's also still out there. Haven't talked about her in a while, have we? Hmm, keep that in mind. Takes a bit to clear off the door. And it's surprising the door's in such good shape as it is. No rust at all. But sure enough, it looks very strong and sturdy. And there's nothing on it that appears to be any form of lock. Um, there is a handle on the door. Much like a refrigerator handle, right? It's not a knob, but like a metal bar. It's like a letter C that's been bolted or welded in that you could just pull or push kind of thing, right? Um... Sarah steps in, because he's the only one strong enough to do it, but sure enough, after pushing for a few minutes, he manages to work the door loose. It has been closed a long time, things have grown, trees probably swollen, so on and so forth. He manages to be able to push the door open. And once it does, they can see that on the other side of the door is a set of stairs carved into the wood and, and the wooden stairs that goes down in. And it doesn't go into a room or anything. It's a stairs that appears to go down in towards the, what would be the center of the tree. But it does go down, and they're at earth level, right? So it could be going even underground. But they see this large tree. And they gather some torches from their packs and light them so that everybody can see. And without any other real option, they begin to go down the stairs and make their way into this massive titanic tree that they have all hopes the magical search circlet they are searching for will be inside. And that's where we're going to stop for today. We run in two hours, went a little bit longer than I thought I would, but that's okay. Had a lot of fun talking about some of that stuff. Um, but that is where we're going to call it for today. So the next episode of Merge Worlds is two weeks from today. I do that every other Tuesday, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we will be continuing with this story. Uh, we're going to be sticking with this group for a little while before we go back to the other group. Um, we're going to be staying with them, the groups, a little longer. We're not jumping back and forth every episode uh, and for, for important reasons. Uh, that'll make sense as we get to them. But for right now, we're going to be staying with Sarah's group for, for a while. Uh, I promise there's a lot of interesting things upcoming. Uh, adventures for this group at hand. Uh, a lot of opportunities for different people to get to shine. So, uh, thank you all for coming and hanging out with me. Again, if you're watching this today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, it would be awesome of you if you wouldn't mind giving the stream a like. Please be sure to subscribe to the channel. And if you have iTunes or Spotify or Amazon podcast account, please consider jumping over there and giving the podcast a follow as well. Um, and if you're already listening to us over there, hey, Thank you very much for joining the audio podcast. Uh, be sure to give it all the stars, five stars, reviews, and likes, and thumbs up, 
or whatever it is on whichever one you use. It definitely helps out the podcast a whole ton. All right. We're going to call that a day. Uh, last little snippet. I'm in the middle or I'm in the process of making a Merged Worlds collectible card game. It's not going to be anytime soon. But I am working on making one that I would eventually like to be able to release for people to play. Uh, so stay tuned for more information on that in the near future. If you'd like to see some cool Merge World merch, like the different clerical god symbols, I'm wearing one of those shirts right now, be sure to swing by my website, onlydraven.com, your one-stop resource for Merge Worlds content. But thank you all for coming and hanging with me. Have yourself a great couple of weeks, and hopefully I will see you again very soon. All right? Have a great day.